0: Chapter One of Travel Stories Retold from Saint Nicholas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Travel Stories from Saint Nicholas by Various. Chapter One The Grand Canyon of Arizona by William Haskell Simpson. Many of those who seek and love Earth's greatest scenery have declared that they found it at the Grand Canyon of Arizona. Travelers flock to it from the ends of the earth, though the majority of the visitors, numbering every year about a 100,000, are Americans. The Grand Canyon of the Colorado River in northern Arizona is indeed a world wonder, and there is no other chasm in the world worthy to be compared with it. It is more than 200 miles long, including Marble Canyon, is from 10 to 13 miles wide in the Granite Gorge section, and is more than a mile deep. It was created ages and ages ago by the erosive action of water, wind, and frost, and it is still being deepened and widened imperceptibly year by year. The Colorado River, which drains a region of 300,000 square miles and is 2,000 miles long from the rise of its principal source, is formed in southern Utah by the junction of the Grand and the Green Rivers, and flowing through Utah and Arizona to tidewater at the Gulf of California, it dashes in headlong torrent through this titanic gorge, this dream of color, tinted like a rainbow or a sunset. The canyon is reached by a railroad running to the rim and may be visited any day in the year. It is unlike most other scenery because when standing on its rim, you look down instead of up. Imagine a gigantic trough filled with bare mountains on each side and sloping to a narrow channel, which in turn is carved deeply and steeply out of solid granite you come upon it unawares from the level timbered plateau country the experience is an absolutely unique one only when you go down one of the trails to the bottom and look up is the view more nearly like other grand mountain vistas The first glimpse, always, is from the upper edge, and having no previous standard of measurement, you find it difficult to adjust yourself to this strange condition. The distant rim swims in a bluish haze. The nearer red rocks forming the inner canyon buttes, crowned with massive tablelands that look like temples, minarets, and battlements, reflect the sunlight in myriad hues. It seems a vast illusion rather than reality. No wonder that the first look often awes the spectator into silence and tears. But before you have been here long, you will wish to know how it all happened. You will ask how the canyon was made. That question was asked by a little girl of Captain John Hance, one of the pioneer guides. Hance contests with a few other early comers the distinction of being the biggest romancer in Arizona. He told her that he dug it all himself. "'Why, Captain Hance,' she said in astonishment, "'what did you do with all the dirt?' He quickly replied, "'I built the San Francisco Peaks, off there with it.' Just between ourselves no one absolutely can tell just how the miracle occurred, for no human being was there at the time. But the geologist has put together, bit by bit, thousands of facts, dug from the rocks, which here lie exposed like a mammoth layer cake, and his explanation is so convincing that it must stand as at least the probable truth. Here may be seen rocks of the four geological periods which are among the very oldest of our earth. The rocks of later periods were here once too, making a layer more than two miles high resting on what is today the top, but in some remote age they were shaved off by some great natural force, perhaps a glacier. The eating away of the rocks which form the canyon itself is modern. Scientists say it was done, as it were, last Monday or Tuesday for it was when the top two-thirds had been shaved off as we have said that the colorado river began to cut the grand canyon through the rocks that formed the lower third while the cracking of the crust caused by internal fires may have helped the process of canyon making the result of erosion is seen everywhere Every passing shower, every desert wind, every snowfall, changes the contour of the region imperceptibly, but surely. The canyon is nature's open book in which we may read how the earth was built. With the coming of the railroad, when this century was yet a baby, tourists began to flock in, hotels were built, highways constructed, trails bettered, and other improvements made. Today, the traveler finds here every comfort. Although first glimpsed by white men in 1540, when the Spanish conquistadors appeared, one expedition journeying from the Hopi pueblos in Tuiseon across the Painted Desert, The Big Canyon remained unvisited, except for Indians and trappers, until 1858, when Lieutenant Ives of the Army Engineer Corps made a brief exploration of the lower reaches of the Colorado, coming out at Cataract Creek. It was not thoroughly explored until the year 1869, when Major John W. Powell made his memorable voyage from the entrance to the mouth of the Great Gorge, passing down the Green and Colorado Rivers. Though he lost two boats and four men, he pushed on to the end. It is fitting that the United States government has erected to his memory a massive monument of native rock with bronze tablets on one of the points near El Tovar Hotel. Powell's outfit consisted of nine men and four rowboats. The distance traveled exceeded 1,000 miles from what is now Green River, Utah, through the series of canyons to the mouth of the Rio Virgin. In the spring of 1871, he again started with three boats and descended the river to the crossing of the Fathers. The following summer, Lee's Ferry was his point of departure, and he went as far as the mouth of Canab Wash. Beginning with the Russell and Monnet party in 1907, several others have essayed to duplicate Powell's achievement, and successfully too, though without adding to our scientific knowledge of the canyon. The trips are exceedingly dangerous, for the rapids conceal rocks that would wreck any boat, and the currents are treacherous. It is safer by far to sit at home and read Powell's story. The average traveller spends too short a time at the canyon. He arrives in the morning and leaves in the evening. Those wise ones, who go about things in more leisurely fashion, stay from three days to a week. There are certain things that everybody does. Simply by looking through the big telescope at the lookout, an intimate view may be had of the far-off North Rim and of the river gorge five miles below in an airline. It is easier than actually going to these places, though both are accessible. The North Rim, or Kebab Plateau, is about a quarter of a mile higher than the South Rim, where you are standing, and is thickly forested with giant pines. Clear streams are found here, and wild game in abundance. Mountain lions hide in the rocks, and bobcats haunt the trees. It is the home of the bear, too. You may see two sassy young sample specimens outside the house where the Indians stay, opposite El Tovar Hotel. The way across the canyon to the north side is not an easy one, as the Colorado must be crossed in a steel cage suspended from a cable which stretches dizzily from bank to bank, then follows the stiff climb up Bright Angel Creek along a trail seldom used. The Hopi House, where the Indians give their dances every evening for free entertainment of guests, is another attraction. It is occupied by representatives of the Snake Dance Hopis, whose home is many miles northeast across the Painted Desert. You won't see the Snake Dance, of course, but you will witness ceremonies just as interesting participated in by men, women, and children of the Hopi and Navajo tribes the little tots especially are very cute they execute difficult steps in perfect time and with the utmost solemnity while the drummer beats the tom-tom and the singer chants his weird songs here you may see navajo silversmiths at work fashioning curious ornaments from mexican coins and turquoise also deft weavers of blankets and baskets The Havasupai Reservation in Cataract Canyon is about 60 miles away, and Indians from that hidden place of the blue waterfalls are frequent visitors around the railway station. All of these Indians understand the language of Uncle Sam. Many of them are Carlisle or Riverside graduates, and one young Hopi is writing a history of his tribe in university English. Have you ever ridden a mule? If not, you will learn how at the canyon, for only on muleback can travelers easily make the trip down and up the trail. Walking is all right going down, but the climb coming back will tire out the strongest hiker, hence the mule or burrow, long as to ears, long as to memory, and sad as to his songs. Of the visitors, fat and lean, tall and short, old and young, to each is assigned a mule of the right size and disposition, together with a khaki riding suit, which fits more or less, all surmounted by hats that are useful rather than ornamental. It is a motley crowd that starts off in the morning in charge of careful guides, from the roof of the world, a motley crowd, but gay and suspiciously cheerful. It is likewise a motley crowd that slowly climbs up out of the earth toward evening, but subdued and inclined still to cling to the patient mule. "'What did you see?' asked curious friends. Quite likely they saw more mule than canyon, being concerned with the immediate views along the trail rather than the thrilling vistas unfolding at each turn. Nine out of ten of them could tell you their mule's name, yet would hesitate to say much about Zoroaster or Angel's Gate. They could identify the steep descent of the devil's corkscrew, for they were a part of it. The mystery of the deep gulf, stretching overhead and all around, probably did not reach them. That is the penalty one pays for being too much occupied with things close at hand. Yet, only by crawling down into the awful depths can the canyon be fully comprehended afterward from the upper rim. All trail parties take lunch on the river's bank. The Colorado is about 200 feet wide here and lashed into foam by the rapids. Its roar is like that of a thousand express trains. The place seems uncanny. At night, under the stars, you appear to be in another world. No water is to be found on the south rim for 100 miles east and west of El Tovar, except what falls in the passing summer showers, and that is quickly soaked up by the dry soil. All the water used for the small army of horses and mules maintained by the Transportation Department, likewise for the big hotel and annex and other facilities, is hauled by rail and tank cars from a point 125 miles distant. The vast volume of water in the Colorado River, only seven miles away, is not available. No way has yet been found to pump economically the precious fluid from a river that today is 30 feet deep and tomorrow is 70 feet deep, flowing below you at the depth of over a mile. Another curious fact is this. The drainage on the south side is away from the canyon, not into it. The ground at the edge of the abyss is higher than it is a few miles back. During the winter of 1917, there was an unusual fall of snow, which covered the sides and bottom of the canyon down to the river. Nothing like it had been seen for a quarter of a century. Generally, what little snow falls is confined to the rim and the upper slopes. At times, the immense gulf was completely filled with clouds, and then the canyon looked like an inland lake. As a rule, this part of Arizona is a land of sunshine. The high altitude means cool summers. The southerly latitude means pleasant winters. Naturally, a place like the Grand Canyon has attracted many great artists and other distinguished visitors. Moving picture companies have staged thrilling photo plays in these picturesque surroundings. Photographers by the score have trained their finest batteries of lenses on rim, trail, and river, some of them getting remarkable results in natural colors. Unmoved by this galaxy of talent, however, the Grand Canyon refuses wholly to give up its secrets. Always there will be something new for the seeker and interpreter of tomorrow. The Grand Canyon is a forest reserve and a national monument. A bill has been introduced in Congress to make it a national park. Meanwhile, the United States Forest Service and the Railway Company are doing all they can to increase the facilities for visitors. A forest ranger is located nearby. His force looks out for fires and polices the Tusayan Forest District. Covering such a large area with only a few men, a system has been worked out for locating fires quickly. Fifteen minutes saved often means victory snatched from defeat. Water is not available, for this is a waterless region except during the short rainy season, so recourse must be had to other devices, such as backfiring and smothering with dirt. Official government names for prominent objects in the region have been substituted for most of the old-time local names. For example, your attention is invited to Yavapai Point, so-called after a tribe of Indians instead of O'Neill's Point. These American Indian words are musical and belong to the country, and the names of Spanish explorers and Aztec rulers also seem suited to the place. Thus, the great canyon has been saved the fate of bearing the hackneyed or prosaic names that have been given to many places of wonderful natural beauty throughout our country. Think of a lover's leap down an abyss of several thousand feet. That atrocity, happily, has been spared us in this favored region. This great furrow on the brow of Arizona never can be made common by the hand of man. It is too big for ordinary desecration. Always it will be the ideal place of silence. Let us continue to hope that the incline railway will not be established here, suitable though it may be elsewhere, nor the merry-go-round. The useful automobile is barred on the highway along the edge of the chasm, though it is permitted in other sections. It has been my good fortune to meet at the canyon many noted artists, writers, lecturers, movie celebrities, singers, and preachers. The impression made upon each one of them by this titanic chasm is almost always the same. At first outward indifference, on guard not to be overwhelmed, for they have seen much the wide world over. Then a restrained enthusiasm, but with emotions well in check. After longer acquaintance, more enthusiasm, and less restraint. At the end, full surrender to the magic spell. End of chapter 1